Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. I'm Alicia. I'm Greg. And we are so excited to be back once again to drink some beer and talk about a horror movie. Heck yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Are you? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I've got some issues going on. I think we both have a lot of issues going on right now. But all things considered, I'm doing great. <laughs> That's good. How are you? Hanging in there. Hanging? Like by a thread? Not quite a I thread. Not by... <laughs> Let's say by like a shoelace. By a shoelace? Yeah. Like a sturdy one? Like a Red Wings shoelace? Like or... a Converse shoelace. Con- oh, shit. Yeah. But I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I mean, that's not great. It's all right. You know? Yeah. Still dealing with some of the after effects of COVID. So I'm really looking forward to just relaxing and having a beer type beverage and just chilling for a while. I know. You haven't been able to enjoy beer for a long time. It's really bumming me out. Like, my sense of taste is still... Like, I have it, but it's a little bit off. So, most of the beer that I've been tasting either tastes really bitter to me or just not right. So, hopefully, the one I'm drinking tonight will be tasty. I know. You have a special one tonight. What are you drinking? I do. So, I don't know if this technically counts as a beer or not. And our friends Rock and Katarina were kind enough to send you home with some beers when you went over there to pick some stuff up. So this is called a, oh boy, Stiegel? Stiegel? Stiegel. Stiegel Radler Zitron Lemon. (laughs) So it's a a malt beverage with natural lemon flavor. It looks really tasty. Yeah, it kind of, when I poured it, it kind of looked and smelled like a Mike's Hard Lemonade. When I talked to him about it, he said it classified as a beer. Okay. That it's very lemony and juicy. It smells really good, and like that's a good sign because my sense of smell is still not quite 100% either, but it smells really good to me. I want to try that when you're done. I'm going to check it out and see how it is. It looks delicious. It looks like the kind of thing I would enjoy. I can't taste a lot of it, but what I can taste, I like very much. You can't taste all that lemon? Not really. Let me try. Why don't you taste it? Tell me if it's just not very strong. I think it's good. It is good. I like it's it. Not, it's definitely not strong by any means, but it's a zesty, lemony yeah. beverage. It's very refreshing. I like it. Yeah. I think that would be an excellent summer beer. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Definitely. <laughs> Does it have alcohol in it? Does it? I don't even know if this has alcohol in is it. Is it even a beer? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you said it was. I just, I don't see anything that says, it has, well, usually if it says malt beverage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Malt. Okay. I mean, Okay, it's a 2% alcohol. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we don't have to worry about you. You know uh, what? That's just fine. Going downhill the night or That's just fine for me. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. What are you drinking? I have at my disposal a new gym, or what I presume to be a new gym from Stone Brewery. Nice. It is called Greetings from Exotic Destinations. Really? Yes. I didn't even notice the name when I picked it up. That's a fun name. <laughs> I think technically it's just called Exotic Destinations, but it has like the fancy logo and everything like you would see in front of a paradise. Yeah. Is it meant to bring to mind like a tropical vacation? Yeah. It even says on the back, like, close your eyes and just imagine yourself somewhere else. Oh, that sounds like <laughs> what everybody wants what, yeah, right exactly. now. <laughs> and it's, it had some, I think it was the Citra Hop. And something like a C two ninety five hop, which I hadn't heard before. Wow! Sound like a like an Android hop, hop? you know, or like a Rick and Morty hop. Nice. I I don't know. It's good. It's very subtle. Really? Yeah, it's not pungent at all, like many of their beers are. It's just a 
nice, even-tempered beer. Nice. You want to try it? Yeah, I'll try it. When I try to smell it, I get just the slightest hint of pineapple. Hmm. It probably has. I mean... Yeah, most of the tropical ones do. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is subtle. I get just a little bit of bitterness, but that's nice. I like it, yeah. That's it's, pretty tame for a be, stone beer. For a stone beer and even for an IPA. That's a really tame IPA to that's me. That's an easy drinker. It is. So, we, you know what? I like that. We both have easy drinkers it's tonight. Nice, just We're just taking it easy. Taking it easy. As we cover a director who does not know the meaning of taking it easy. <laughs> no, that man <laughs> is so far removed from the taking it easy philosophy. He has zero chill. Zero. Yeah. So we are... Cro- That's why I love him. Yeah. Me too. We are, of course, talking about Darren Aronofsky, who is one of my favorite directors, without a doubt. Yeah. He Huge fan. grown on me leaps and bounds yeah. over the years. I remember watching... His first movie, which I didn't know was his movie, or it was before I even really gave a shit about who a director was in the first place. Yeah. And I hated it. <clears throat> yeah. Was that... Um, which Pie. One? Pie. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't actually seen that one. I didn't like it at all. I watched that in high school. Yeah. And then I watched Requiem for a Dream, which Recently, everyone right? was going batshit crazy about. Right. Actually, I sorry. I tried to watch it. Back when everyone else was going crazy about it. Yeah. And I make it through. I thought it was just incredibly pretentious. And I thought there was just so much hype behind it. And I thought everybody was just eating their own asses. Yeah. (laughs) And it really made me mad. And so then from there on, I think I avoided his movies. Because at that point, I just wanted to know who it was. So I could get him out of the fuck of my life. (laughs) Wow. And then... You showed me Black Swan. Which you also hated the first time. Which I also hated the first time. <laughs> like I said, he's hey, completely hey, hey. bounds now because he actually is one of my favorite directors. Wow. But then when you have me watch Black Swan again, and this time kind of per- like explained it to me in some other regards. And actually, I actually, I think I was, it's kind of like when you try a food that you've never had before, mm-hmm. but you always assume that you hated. Yeah. Like, that first time that you tried it, if you've already assumed that you hated it, you probably aren't going to like it. Yeah. And then you might go back and be like, you know what? I'm not sure if it was really bad or if I was just being a little bitch. (laughs) And I was just being a little bitch. Yeah. And I came back and I loved it. And now you've come around. I have. He is that kind of director, though, where I don't think anybody is neutral about... Darren Aronofsky, they either absolutely love him or they just think he's the most pretentious director out there and they hate his movies. Which I get. Yeah, I totally get it. I mean, either way, his movies are going to get a strong reaction out of people. Yeah. Like, that's what they're meant to do. And they do. And I have um, watched interviews with him in the past. It's been a while, but he loves that. Like, even if you hate his movies, he says... I want to get a reaction out of people and provoke a strong emotional response, whether that's elation or fear or disgust. It's all good to me. That's what he's here to do. Nice. Well, he's he's nailing it. Yeah. And he was actually, as far as I can remember, one of the first, if not the first directors besides like, you know, Tim Burton, where I would start seeking out or watching movies just based on the fact that he directed them. Like, that was the first time I could remember having a director on my radar and wanting to see his other work when I was younger. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of the first times that happened. So just in honor of Mr. Aronofsky, I thought we could compose a list of 
the movies that we've seen by him and rank them. Let's do it. I have a feeling that ours are going to be fairly similar. At least there may be some discrepancy in the top three. I think there's going to be some discrepancy. But I think after that, it's all (laughs) I think so too. It's going to be interesting. And I have to say just off the top, I had this idea early on for this movie. Like I knew I wanted to talk about this for the beginning of our episode. This is the most difficult thing I've done for any of our episodes. It took me forever to come up with this list because I love every single movie I've seen by him. So to have to rank them from my least favorite to my favorite was so hard for me because I love all of them. I found this not very hard. This was really hard for me. (laughs) Well, I do want to say that as far as the rankings go, especially for the movies that I I really do like from him, Mm -hmm. which are a large, at least half of what's on this list. I want to say that it's not so much that there, it's not like a logarithmic scale, you know? So like the difference between one and two is not like that big. Same, it's same for very me. Minimal. Yeah. Like, they're all really great movies, and I'm not even ranking them in a matter of, like, which one's better. Yeah. It's just what I like more. Same here, yeah. That's my personal preference, but right. they're all fantastic. Yeah. I think the top, his top four movies, to me, are all amazing and equally good. Yeah. As far as just quality-wise. Agreed. So, at this point, you have actually seen more Aronofsky movies than I have. So, I've seen five. So, that would mean that you have six, right? Okay, so I'll let you go first since you have more. And then we can go back and forth. How about that? Why not? Or I'll let you do... How about you do six and five and then we'll bounce off each other. Oh, you want to go... You want to start from the bottom? Yeah, that's right. We should should do that. Yeah, we should should do our favorites last. (laughs) Well, I already said uh, pie. I watched that initially. I have not rewatched it. I have no intention of rewatching it. We watched a preview for it recently, and I'm not interested. And it was his first attempt. Sometimes that means it's great. Sometimes it means he's it a was little like, rusty. Yeah, like the first time you have sex, like you're usually not good. Yeah. So it just this was his first go. I could see from just the trailer because I haven't seen that movie, and you know I took your word for it, especially knowing that we do like so many of the same movies, and now you are also. A fan of his. I was bored just from the trailer, and I honestly didn't have a lot of interest in watching it. I will eventually watch it, but I could see just from the trailer the camera tricks and the filming style that he has in every single one of his other movies. Like you could see all of that in his first movie. Yeah. And he just jumps off of that and builds on it and vastly improves from what What, I've seen. What's the name of that again? When you can pick up on a film. Oh, director. like based on based on their style, or where they yeah. like where you know it's them. I remember it's we a, talked about it with uh, the, Alfred Hitchcock. It's called the auteur theory. Oh, okay. Yeah. So why is it a theory? Huh? Why is it a theory? Well, because there's no. I don't know. They, that's just what they call it. <laughs> a theory Who's that they? <laughs> it's like the theory that directors can do that. Like they can embed their style so deeply in something that you know it's them just by seeing a few. I think of it's it. beyond yeah. a theory at this point. But it's okay. It's auteur. Proven. Okay. Or, or directors who do that are yeah, auteurs. Yeah, a tour effect. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so that's I your kid. number six. How about your number five? My number five is yeah. Requiem for a Dream. Okay, I, I thought, still it, think I thought movie, it would be. I, I yeah. still think that movie is pretentious as fuck. <laughs> but All right, after watching it, actually somewhat recently with you, and that was really the first time I had seen that movie all the way through. Yeah. When we watched it a few months ago or however long ago it was now. I don't know, it might have been nine months ago, the way this year has gone. I really enjoyed it. It was well done. It had some great themes, and the acting in it 
was very well done, especially the mom. She oh was one God. of the most compelling characters in that whole story. Yeah. But it was still pretentious as Okay. Well. That's fair. I think you might be a little surprised by my list. Well, that's what a block swan is. Okay. Well, my number five, and this was really hard, is The Wrestler. Okay. So we just watched this for the first time last weekend, and it was fantastic. Such a good movie. It was heartbreaking. It was touching. Every single actor in that movie gave a completely flawless performance, in my opinion, especially Mickey Rourke. Holy shit. So good. It was fantastic. I I would consider this probably the most tame of all of Aronofsky's movies and probably the friendliest for a wider audience, like the most palatable for a wider audience, but it still had that devastating emotional impact that his movies tend to have. Just for some reason, even though it was excellent, it didn't stick with me for long after I watched it like all of his other movies did. Like I didn't find myself thinking about it days later or ruminating on it. It was just a very, very good movie. That's fair. And I think that that movie was the only one that he didn't write, so that might have something to do with it, but it just didn't quite have the the punch that his other ones did, in my opinion. Well, he didn't write Black Swan. He didn't? No. It was like three different people there. Oh, shit. Actually, okay. he had, I was reading about it, and there was an initial script that was written that he had commissioned, and... I think, you know, obviously the idea and everything he had, but he had the the actual script he had somebody else write. And he liked the original version, but it wasn't what he was looking for exactly. And it wasn't, I think one of the major things is that it wasn't on uh, a major Broadway play. It was like a smaller opera house or something like that, or ballet house, whatever you call it. And then he had another guy take that and write it more like he liked it. And then he had another guy do a final script on it. No way. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know what it was then. <laughs> I will <laughs> agree that The Wrestler is by far his most normal-ish movie. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's very much palatable yeah. compared to other movies. That being said, I thought it was great. And yeah. I thought the acting was great and the storyline. I think part of the reason maybe that it wasn't such a stick with it movie for you is the fact that you're not into wrestling. Yeah. And you're not into that world. And so it was the the human story behind it was compelling and good, but it wasn't necessarily anything else about it that was something that would stick with you. Yeah. I have had people like actually reminding me very much of uh, a guy that I used to work with and lived with for a while because he had been a... Uh, a wrestler. He mm-hmm. was in the original like MMA, UFC shit, and he, you know, he's like one of the big bulky dudes that have been calen- calendars and just exactly what you would expect. And he was so much like that dude in so many ways of like being a good natured person and having you know put his body through hell. And when I met him, it was shortly after the time that he had been homeless for a number of years and had just gotten himself back into like getting a job and trying to make ends meet and trying to reestablish his life. And that movie really does incorporate and embody the whole of that type of entertainment system where it's like these people literally kill themselves for our entertainment and have nothing to show for it. Absolutely. It was heartbreaking. And 
I'm sure you read this too, but the wrestler was apparently intended to be uh, originally Black Swan and the wrestler were going to be like one movie telling two different stories that kind of intertwine of a wrestler and a ballerina. But now they're considered by Darren Aronofsky to be sort of companion pieces to each other. And they both kind of cover that theme of these industries where these people just brutalize their own bodies and like you said, practically kill themselves for our entertainment and their entire identities are wrapped up in their work to the point where when they can't do it anymore, when they don't have that anymore, they have literally nothing. And it's so sad. Yeah. But ultimately <laughs> he decided that both worlds were too big to combine into one. Yeah. I'm glad he split them off. Definitely. Definitely. So that was my number five. What was your number four? The wrestler. The wrestler. Okay. Yeah. I thought we'd be kind of neck and neck on that. Same reason, or yeah, I mean, the three movies beyond this, I just like them more. That's okay. All. I yeah. like the content behind them more. And again, the wrestler was more of his tamest movie. The next three to me are balls to the walls, Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, <laughs> and I had never seen all three of these, I had not seen anything like them. Whereas the wrestler, great movie, well done, great story, great acting, but. The actual film itself wasn't necessarily, I won't say it wasn't unique, but it wasn't, it didn't stand out. It's something that you would imagine doing well at the Oscars. Yeah. Or being noticed. Being noticed, yeah. being appreciated. Yeah. Without pissing a bunch of people off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's very good at that, at pissing people off. And speaking of being good at pissing people off, my number four pick <laughs> is Mother. You son of a bitch. <laughs> This movie really pissed people off. I think this is his most polarizing movie by far, and people absolutely hated it. I loved Mother. So the fact that it's in my number four spot, don't take it too hard. I loved this movie. I went in completely blind, or as blind as possible, really having only seen the posters for it. And even the posters were so unique. It looked like a painting. And then even just seeing the title, like the scripted title with the exclamation point was fascinating to me. And I wanted to watch it. I remember that too. That, Like you said, the title in particular, like mother with an exclamation point yeah. and that stylized writing. And, and then you're like, what the fuck does that yeah. mean? And then seeing that it was directed by Darren Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem are in it. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm in immediately. I don't care what it's about. I don't know what it's about. So I think that maybe going in blind was beneficial to me and already being such a fan of this director and knowing that I was not going to be in for a normal movie going experience was very helpful. And we're obviously going to cover it on the podcast, but this movie was a wild ride. I think it was his most ambitious movie, for sure. And one of the most interesting things about it, which we'll go into more detail when we cover it, was that there was no score. And Aronofsky is kind of known for partnering with Clint Mansell, who's one of my absolute favorite composers, and I love when they get together. It was so interesting and, in my opinion, so ambitious and just gutsy to not have a score. That's a ballsy move. It is, because I feel like it forces you to form your own emotions and opinions about what's happening without any kind of score to guide your emotions. And I feel like Clint Mansell specifically is very good at making you feel specific things without making you feel like you're being manipulated. Which is what a good score does. Yes. But Mother didn't do that, and I thought that was a brave choice, and it worked for that movie. I would have liked to hear 
the original score only because it was originally composed by uh, Johan Johansson, who did the score for Mandy. But I think they made the right call in that case. So I absolutely love that movie, but it just doesn't compete with my top three. So now we get into your top three. What's your number three? Three for me was The Fountain. Okay. Which I have a feeling is possibly number one for you. It's up there for me. Okay. That one was, again, something that you had introduced me to. And it's sad as fuck. And I think that's the reason why it's a little lower. I guess not low, it's three. But compared to the other two, it's not fun for me to watch. Yeah. I enjoy it. It's a great movie. Hugh Jackman, I think, is just a wonderful actor. I can pretty much watch anything that he is in. He just is phenomenal in every role that he plays. And this is no exception. And the concept of it, of this... Again, this this was an ambitious movie, too, because this was really taking on this whole idea of what death and love and life is and trying to portray that in different ways and the desperation and acceptance and the history of human beings and their interpretation of the afterlife and the meaning of life. Absolutely. It's gorgeous. It's a very aesthetically pleasing and stimulating movie. Probably his most. Yeah, I agree. 100%. It's definitely the most sensory experience out of all his movies, I think. I don't know. I'm thinking of Mother to you. Yeah, just kind of neck and neck The physical distress watching Mother. (laughs) Yeah. But as far as just aesthetically pleasing, I think Fountain is his most aesthetically pleasing movie. I agree. For sure. Okay. My number three is Requiem for a Dream. This was the first movie by him that I ever saw. I was in middle school when I saw it. I just happened to come across it on HBO. I hadn't heard anything about it. I didn't know what it was. And it had a huge impact on me. (laughs) Huge. It ruined my life. (laughs) I had never seen anything like it. I didn't know movies could be like that. I didn't know they could make you feel that way. Just leaving you absolutely devastated. Like I've talked about this feeling before, like when you wake up from this horrible nightmare and it impacts the rest of your day. That's how I felt after seeing this movie. And I watched it alone at night because I couldn't sleep. So I would just, you know, sneak out in the living room and watch whatever. And that movie wrecked me. And you never did any hard drugs. Never. Because of that movie. (laughs) It definitely helped with that, like making sure that I never, ever did that. But it stuck with me for years. And I honestly credit this movie as the reason why I sometimes seek out just supremely fucked up emotional roller coasters. And movies? Yeah. And movies. Yeah. Not in real life. I'm not about that. But <laughs> but I seek out movies like that because of this movie. It was so disturbing and heartbreaking. And it fucked me up so bad that I never watched it again until you and I watched it. It's one of those movies that you really only have to watch once. And then if you're going to watch it again, it's because you're watching it with someone who hasn't seen it. Right. That's the only reason to watch that movie again. Yeah, I'll never watch that again. It's devastating. It also has that iconic Clint Mansell score. And that was my first introduction to him as well. And that was really the first time other than Nine Inch Nails where a composer was on my radar. It's fantastic. It does have an amazing soundtrack. Iconic. And you hear that all the time. Like that same piece from that well, movie. Because it captured just this idea of that drug-addled mindset. Yeah. It's amazing. And Ellen Burstyn's performance. I've 
never seen anything like that. That was fantastic. Oh my god, she was she, so good in that. She broke my heart yeah. and she scared me. Mm-hmm. Not scared, like oh, she's scary, but like learning that people can suffer like that from that kind of loneliness and despair is just—it's a devastating, beautifully done movie. I it love is, it. and I think I'm—I'm I'm hitting, like I'm realizing this, but a lot of those movies are very ambitious, no matter what they are. Yeah. Like, that was ambitious because not only did he try to capture... You know, it's one thing to take, like, drugs and youth, which is yeah. arguably a large portion of that movie because it's between... I'm not good with actors' names, but you probably know them. But, you know, you have the male and the female characters, mm-hmm. and they're both young. I think one of them's still in high school or just out of high school. I, yeah, I think the they're, like, college age. Yeah, maybe just freshman or junior in college. So it's one thing to capture that. But, like you said... What's her name? Ellen Burstyn. With Ellen Burstyn, it was this idea that, and it's something that it's very much in the media now, and a lot of people's radars now with opioid addiction and all these other pharmaceutical drugs, but there was a lot of association of drug addicts and the effect that it has on people in hard drugs that you get on the street. Yeah. Whereas there was this, there is this undercurrent of kind of mainstream-ish prescription drugs. I remember having lots of family members that got into FinFin and which is speed, which was sold regularly, you know, just kind of like Coca-Cola. It's just like, there's always like this new type of thing that everyone thinks is this miracle diet drug or this miracle thing that's going to help you with this. And she's essentially was taking that. She was taking diet pills that were speed. And that was a very common thing. And it gets people hooked and did try to capture that. And, And this older woman who's suffering that, devastating loneliness it was ambitious very and especially it came out in it was either 2000 or 2001 and you know we were still in a time and still are to a degree in a time where addiction is so stigmatized and misunderstood and i feel like that movie took a very compassionate approach to it while still showing you the devastating effects that it had so it's not just like oh look at these young people making bad decisions and ruining their own lives because they're bad it's this can literally happen to anybody. That's a great point. That was another thing that was really well done about it. It wasn't blaming anybody. Yeah, it's just tragic. Yeah, it's it just, just sad. It was, this is what's happening. These are sons and daughters and grandmas and mothers. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> it's time. a bummer. All of his movies have one thing in common. Bummer. Fuck, that was a bummer. <laughs> Beautiful, but damn, that yeah. was a buzzkill. I love him so much. He's so good at I just love... When a movie can make me feel like that. All right. Number two for you. Two for me, Black Swan. Nice. We'll talk about it, right? We'll talk about it. We'll (laughs) We'll talk about it. We'll get to it. Okay. My number two is The Fountain. Okay. This was the second movie that I saw by him, and I immediately wanted to see it. One, because my dad went and saw it in theaters, and he said it made him cry because it was so beautiful and heartbreaking. I was like, oh, shit, I have to watch it if it made my dad cry like that. You can have your dad. Happy birthday, Tom. Happy birthday, dad. It's his birthday today. (laughs) But so that, and I saw that it was from the same director as Requiem for a Dream. So I knew I was in for an emotional roller coaster, especially after hearing that from my dad. And this one is actually his lowest rated movie, like on Rotten Tomatoes. It got a 50 something percent, which I think is so sad because I love this movie so much. And I know that you had said that this movie is so ambitious, and it definitely is. And I had read that Darren Aronofsky, this was like his 
passion project. He wanted this to be his biggest project, biggest story, biggest movie. And there were some issues with the budget and the production. So this was supposed to be a $70 million movie and his budget got cut in half. So he basically had to rewrite the script, rewrite everything to fit with half the budget, recast it, which ended up, in my opinion, working out in his favor, and make that movie despite those obstacles. The first time I watched it, I cried through the entire thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> long after the credits were over, I was still crying. And I watched it about a dozen times in a very short span of time after Damn. the first watch. I couldn't stop watching it. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's devastating, but in a beautiful way, instead of in a dark and disturbing way like the rest of his movies seem to be. It also has one of my favorite movie soundtracks of all time. Absolutely beautiful. And this one solidified Clint Mansell as one of my favorite composers. I was like, I gotta okay, go this back guy, and listen to that one. It is so beautiful. I still listen to it on a regular basis, but I have to be careful when I listen to it because it's so sad. <laughs> but it's gorgeous. It's so good. And I was actually thinking about this when I was preparing for this episode about Clint Mansell. To me, he's almost like the Neil Gaiman of composers, only in the sense that his pieces are almost deceptively simple, but they are able to evoke so much emotion out of you. And they're so beautiful, despite how simple they might seem on the surface. They kind of just like creep in and get under your skin. Hmm. That's a good that. point. Yeah. I like that analogy. It kind of reminds me of that. Like Neil Gaiman's writing is the same way. It seems a little bit simple. And then before you know it, you're just sucked in. So good. I know what your number one is. And I knew what it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, most people hated this movie. I loved Mother. That is by far my favorite movie of his. Yeah. It was insanely ambitious and well done. We'll talk about it. I'll talk about it on the podcast at some point because I fucking love that movie. That was the one that really solidified Darren Aronofsky for me. I was like, you know what? Cheers, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you got, I like it. And obviously, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, she's great. And uh, Javier... Bardem. Bardem. Like, yeah. If you're going to cast those two, like, come on. Great. Oh, man. I want to watch it again. It was awesome. It's so disturbing. And <laughs> as a, especially as a... You know, a bit of an introvert. Oh, it was my worst nightmare. Absolutely. It's terrifying to Ugh. me. Like, that movie on is so terrifying to me. I'm on the edge of my... I don't, I'm not even on my seat. I'm just, like, cringing in a ball in the corner Yeah. <laughs> when I watch that movie because it's just so fucking stressful. I would love to see him do more horror movies. Oh, yeah. Because you he's know not what really, really a horror fun? director. It's probably not. It probably is more fun to think about, and it's actually not fun at all. What? But it kind of reminds me of when you have... I was going to suggest uh, having directors make movies together. Yeah. Like team up. Okay. But I was thinking of, you know, musicians when they do it, it's typically pretty fun. You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to get Dave Grohl and I'm going to get John Paul Jones and I'm going to get Josh Holmes together and I'm going to have a super group. I'm like, yeah, that's fucking fun. I it's knew great. you were going to use that as your example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great example. It is, yeah. But I, I think the idea of it in a movie, as soon as I started to say it, I realized that probably wouldn't work. But I also just like the idea of trying to combine two people. So I was thinking, how cool would it be to get Darren Aronofsky and Ari Aster together? That would be overwhelming. That would be cool. <laughs> that I would, would be, watch that would that be intense. I mean, there are movies that people co-direct. 
Yeah. Or sometimes you get, like, one does the writing, the other one does the directing, but I think behind the scenes, they both help each other on this front. I would like to see a movie written by Ari Aster and directed by Aronofsky. Yeah. If they were going to team up, that's the combo I would want. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, that leaves my number one, which is none other than Black Swan. What a great fucking segue. I thought so. Yeah. So this movie... I know that Aronofsky is... I keep wanting to call him Daronofsky. Dar- <laughs> to shorten it a little bit. Daronofsky. Daronofsky. <laughs> He's notorious for making movies that are just hard to watch, hard to swallow, extremely disturbing. And I feel like out of all of his movies that I've seen, this one is definitely the most watchable. It's still supremely fucked up and disturbing, but I find this movie to be incredibly entertaining and thrilling and fun to watch. I was going to say, uh, watching this again... And then doing a little bit more research on it. I'm on the same page. Yeah. This is his most rewatchable movie. It is. And I think that this movie is nearly perfect in every way. It's absolutely fantastic. And I will never forget the first time I saw it. It was such an uncomfortable experience. But it's so funny to think about. Yes. So... My friend, Nicole, she's one of my best friends. We met in 2010, and that was when this movie came out. I think just a couple days ago, it had its 10-year anniversary. And we had met at the beginning. We've done that more than once on this podcast. Yeah, we did it with American Psycho, too, like on its 20-year. On just accidentally. Yeah. I did this one on purpose, though, I will say. Yeah, 10 years ago. So we had been friends for the semester, and then at the end, near Christmas, she invited me to go home up north with her to the Bay Area to stay with her for a few days and just hang out, meet her family, have a good time. So we went up there and I had just met her mom and her stepdad for the first time on that trip. So, you know, we had a good time. They took us out one day for some Christmas shopping and then they took us to a really nice dinner. And then we decided we were all going to go see a movie together. And Nicole and I really wanted to see Black Swan. So we went to go see Black Swan, this Darren Aron... I knew it was by Darren Aronofsky. I should have known better, but I really wanted to see it. I could not turn down a chance to see a horror movie, especially by one of my favorite directors. And it was the first time he had directed a horror movie. So like, count me the fuck in. So that was an incredibly uncomfortable experience. And Nicole and I were just like tense and cringing the whole time. And when we left the theater, we're like, oh my god, that was so uncomfortable. But holy shit, that movie was so (laughs) awesome. Her parents were pretty quiet. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of like a, that was interesting type of thing. That was something. Yeah, something. But I was obsessed with it. So immediately when I got back home from that trip, I went and saw it again in theaters with your sister, with Crystal. And I think I might have seen it a third time in theaters. Nice. I loved it this movie so much, but I don't recommend watching it with your parents. Or someone else's. Or some, especially somebody else's who you've never met (laughs) until that day. (laughs) But it's so good. So this movie, just a quick synopsis. It follows Nina Sears, played by Natalie Portman, who is a ballet dancer for a dance company. And you can tell right from the get-go that ballet is her entire life, her entire identity, Everything she is, is wrapped up in ballet, and all she wants is to be perfect and to master it. So she ends up being cast as the Swan Queen in a production of Swan Lake, which is a classic ballet. By uh, Travinsky? I can't think of... I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Travinsky. It's something, something like that. Or, or no, no. Uh, Tra- Tra- Travosky? 
Tchaikovsky. 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 We're sorry. Tchaikovsky. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so he did Nutcracker. He did Swan Lake. Yes. I know he did an interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, and there's something else that he's incredibly well known for, and I can't yeah. think of it right now. So very, very well known. Yeah, late 1800s. Obviously, every single one of his ballets, musicals, is just done to the hilt still today. Yeah, and know, the dance instructor says that. He says it's done to death, but we are going to do this stripped-down version, make it raw, make it real, and we need a new swan queen. So, obviously, every woman in this ballet school wants to be the Swan Queen. He ends up picking Nina. We'll go into more detail about that. But Nina's biggest obstacle is herself. And she is extremely stunted and repressed for reasons that we will get into. But she is unable to embody the Black Swan. So, this movie follows Nina trying to overcome her personal and outside obstacles to become the Black Swan and perfect this part. And it's mad. This movie is completely bonkers all the way through. Yeah, it's, it's fun. <laughs> if you haven't seen this, go watch it. It's, yeah. it's fun. It really is. And one of the things that I just love about Darren Aronofsky's movies is that they are multi-layered and complex. Yes. And they make you think and... Every single one of his movies, this one, no exception, is something that you can and people have just written volumes about when it comes to dissecting it and what does this mean. I love movies that do that. I love something. To me, that's art. Yes. When you can have multiple interpretations of something and people want to interpret it, it's art. And this movie is straight up art. Absolutely. I've always loved his filming style, and he's really notorious for these close-up shots of the actors where you feel like you're in the room with them, and the camera work feels almost voyeuristic. Yeah. And in this movie, I feel like he perfected that. You always feel like not only that you're seeing things from Nina's perspective, but also that you're looking in on her when you shouldn't be. Yeah, that's a great point. It's very much intrusive. Yes, it feels very intrusive. And it's kind of grainy and kind of shaky, almost like documentary style, which makes it feel very real. And he's very good at that. Like he he does this trick a lot. I don't see it too much in this movie. But in Requiem for a Dream, he does it a lot where he'll actually strap the camera to the actor. So you're right up in their face. And it just feels so oppressive and claustrophobic. So even though he doesn't seem to do that in this movie, he still gets up close and personal with the camera. So you have that like claustrophobic, oppressive feeling. And I particularly loved the way he films the dancing Hmm. where you're spinning with them and you're turning around and around and it's just disorienting, but not in a way that like puts you off of watching it. Yeah, that's a great point. I was reading that he actually used a super 16 millimeter film on all of this Nice, because he wanted that graininess, and in particular, he didn't want it to have, like, a glossy feel to it. Yeah, I love so that. So I think he actually did the same thing with The Wrestler, mm-hmm. with the um, Super 16. Yeah, it looked very and similar. Like the, he wanted people to be able to have, like, handheld cameras, like little Super 16 cameras. And yeah. so when we were watching the thing at the end of the movie, and we saw him, like, going around with that looked like a little director's tool. Oh, that was the camera? I think that was an actual camera oh, that he wow, was going around okay. with. I love that. Yeah. I also loved... I mean, I love the whole look of this movie. It was one of the first things that I loved about it when I saw it. That intro scene was 
absolute perfection where we open with Nina's dream. What an intro. Seriously. Holy shit. That was brilliant. But the color palette, the soundtrack, the film quality, and just the overall cinematography are perfect. They are. So to me, this movie's not so much about going through a blow blight, a blow blah blow <laughs> of scenes as it is that overall themes. I agree. Yeah, you can't really talk through the plot of this because we were kind of joking about it when we were watching it because we were asking like, is this really happening? If that is that really happening? And I'm like, I think it's safe to assume that we might be dealing with an unreliable narrator. Yes. So, <laughs> so succinctly put. Yeah, we are you're very much dealing with an unreliable yeah. narrator as you go through this thing. You're like, it's quite Wait, what the fuck just happened? It's quite possible that none of this is real. <laughs> so, yeah, talking through a blow by blow of the plot isn't really useful for this movie. No. So. I I would say that one of the major aspects of this is just the and it, it it's enfolded in many different other themes and topics. But one of the core things is duality. You know, obviously, it's the name of the... It's like the whole production of the play. You have the white swan and the black swan. And I think... Yeah, I have it here. So the Thomas Leroy, the character... Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> who is the... Basically the director of the ballet mm-hmm. right and he plays the uh, antagonist in a, in a sense kind of i think what's that, a better word for it i think he is an antagonist because he's the one that pushes nina and he's also very predatory he's definitely predatory yeah so i i think that again like there are so many interpretations of this movie so you could say that nina's nina is. nina's the antagonist yeah. her mom toma the other girls in the dance company, like there is a lot, there are a lot of opposing forces all throughout this movie. There's really no clear cut protagonist versus antagonist. But nevertheless, you have Thomas and he tells Nina and the rest of the girls, I think specifically talking to Nina of like this duality and he's saying, and the fact that this new rendition, this modern version is going to have one woman play both parts. Yeah. And he says the white swan is beautiful, fearful, fragile. The black swan is about seduction, imprecision, effortlessness, lack of control, letting go, an evil twin, someone with a bite. So, I mean, you have that as the concept of what is going on in the ballet. You have the the mirrors that play such a huge part in this movie. And what Nina sees in the reflections. You have her visions of herself, like out in the real world. You know, she sees herself all over the place, but like an evil version and of herself. And she's always wearing black. And she's always wearing black. You also have the idea of between her being a child and an adult, a mature sexual adult. It just deals with that a lot. And one of the things that, there's a lot in this that has to do with just the idea that like the metamorphosis of puberty in yeah. a sense and growing from, you know, a child to adulthood and how horrific that can be, especially for a woman. Yeah. And especially under Nina's circumstances. Right. To me, one of the most highlighted aspects of that and what's more compelling to me is this idea of what we place upon the expectations of women. Yeah. Especially young women 
and all women. And and Tomas says that too. He's like, you know, you're beautiful, you're perfect, you're like the perfect white swan. Yeah. Like if this was just that role, I would cast you in a fucking heartbeat. But I also want you to be this seductive mistress who is carefree and effortless and all these other things. And I feel like that really encompasses this expectations that we place on women where it's we want them in society, not necessarily like me speaking, obviously. Yeah, of course. But we have this duality where we want you to be prim and proper. We want you to be respectable. We want you to be mature. We mm-hmm. want you to be perfect. Like, be a, a modern woman. At the same time, I want you to be my dirty fucking whore. Yeah. And I want you to do all these other things, too. On my terms. On my terms. But it has to be fucking perfect. Yeah. And you have to be both of them. And it's like asking a fucking circle to be a square. Yeah, it's unattainable. It's literally unattainable. It's like not... They don't... It's not compatible. Yeah. They're non-compatible. And it's just really pushing that. And that's just on women in general. And then tying that into puberty and a young woman in a pressurized, highly just brutal industry where we take and use young women and men, but primarily women in ballet, and from childhood yeah. up into this point and use them as like a meat grinder of entertainment and we spit them out by the time they're, you know, 25. Yeah, and then you have the character of Beth, Beth. to yeah. really emphasize that, played by Winona Ryder, who I always forget is in this Same. movie no matter how many times I watch it, but Beth is maybe my age or your age. And she is being forced out of the industry because of the rampant ageism that you have in an industry like this. And it's not just in ballet. I mean, you see it in Hollywood, too, with women specifically. Like, they reach a certain age and they're no longer cast as the love interest or a character that has a chance to be a whole person or to be interesting. I feel like they did a really, really good job emphasizing that with Beth's character juxtaposed with Nina. And I would say even with Nina's mother, and there's just a shit ton of things to talk about with her, but Nina's mother had also been a dancer before she got pregnant with Nina. And, you know, they're kind of starting to clash. It's almost like Nina has reached her teenage rebellion stage 10 years late because she's been so stunted by her mother and by this life. And, you know, she obviously appears to have some other problems with mental illness that she's dealing with that have just so severely stunted her growth. And now she's finally starting to rebel against her mother. And she kind of says when they have a little bit of an argument that, you know, you were 28 and she kind of trails off, but she's basically implying that you were already done. You were already aged out of this. You were too old. You were a has-been. Nobody cared at that point. And we definitely get the impression that one, her mother definitely has narcissistic personality disorder. And two, she is 100% living vicariously through Nina and forcing her to live the life that she couldn't live. Right. Yeah. Nina's mom and that whole dynamic is, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And as far as just that, it, it almost has a sense of, I know that's not what it is, but one of the first things that came to my mind was, Munchausen's by proxy. Absolutely. You know, it almost seems like she's trying to hurt her daughter. Yeah. There's definitely a sinister vibe that I get from the mother. Like you get the you get the aspect of her living vicariously, but again there's that duality. Of, she also deeply resents her. Yeah. She has the fact that she her daughter is essentially outperforming her 
now all of a sudden starts to severely like fuck with her psyche. Yeah. I actually got a lot out of the use of color within their apartment, like with the dynamic between Nina and her mother. And I definitely got a vibe of Munchausen's by proxy too, and just a whole plethora of other psychological shit that's going on. One, I think there's the narcissistic thing where it's impossible for the mother to really speak to Nina without reminding her of how much Nina needs her and how much she's given up for her and how she will be forever dependent on her and in her debt. Because Munchausen's by proxy, there is an element of that. But the big thing with Munchausen's by proxy is that you become fixated on the sympathy and attention you're getting from other people because your child or loved one is sick. And they're kind of isolated together. But I did get the vibe of that, particularly with the colors. So you have Nina's bedroom, which is literally a child's bedroom. Like there's butterfly wallpaper. Everything's pink. They're stuffed animals. She talks like a baby and her mom just infantilizes her like crazy. But then if you look at the mom's half of the apartment, it's like a sickly green that I associate with sickness and Mm -hmm. illness. Even all the weird portraits that she has been making of Nina and that she spends her they're time grotesque. making. They are. They're disgusting. And I feel like they're full of hate. Hate? And like you like you said, it's sickness. Yeah. And every essence of her exterior self. I loved that moment where Nina is losing her shit for like the 12th time, but it's increasingly getting more intense and all the paintings are like laughing and crying and mm-hmm. talking to her and whispering. That was so cool. Yeah. There's some good shit in this. Good scenes. Yeah, the mom is something else. And it really puts Nina in such a bad position because at this point, ballet has been her entire life. She's completely isolated. She doesn't have any friends. She has never had the chance to explore her identity, her sexuality, her own interests. And that leaves her incredibly vulnerable to somebody like Thomas, who is predatory and seems to seems to have this behavior with a lot of his dancers. And I think it was interesting to see the way that he was portrayed in this movie, because this was before all the shit about Harvey Weinstein came out. And the way that he's portrayed is we're seeing him from Nina's perspective. So when you watch it, you are almost manipulated into thinking, oh, he just wants her to do well and he's not that bad. And he just wants to push her because he knows she can do it. But then when you really look at it and you're aware of how common this type of predatory behavior is, we see that he is taking advantage of this young woman who has never been with anybody, who has her entire life and identity wrapped up in this industry. And he holds her entire career in the palm of his hand and uses that against her. Absolutely. And it's really upsetting. And he comes off as, you know, almost charming and like he means well, but it's just so sinister when you think about that power imbalance and what's really happening here. And in particular in these high pressure industries where there's, for numerous reasons, both ageism and other aspects of it, just the sheer competitiveness of it for how many people are trying to do it. You made the analogy of just Hollywood yeah. and actors. The same thing and you know, 
Harvey Weinstein. And you have these women that not only is this their livelihood and they really don't know anything else they've been, as far as like with Nina's perspective, she doesn't know anything else. She's been brought up into this since she was a child. Many of these actors have been brought up since they were young children. So not only is that their identity and they're trying to just fight for that chance to really in their mind's eye, like, be somebody, because mm-hmm. that is what they identify with. But building on that, I guess, is the aspect of if they were to fight against this one individual, because it's easy to think, like, oh, fuck that dude. But you can't just say, fuck that dude, because if you do, you will never get a job anywhere ever again. Yeah. The old boys club. It's, yeah. I'm the fucking head of the, I, I don't even know where they're at, New York somewhere, right? It seems like it, yeah. Yeah, so you're like, I'm the head of Broadway. You fuck with me, you're never going to work anywhere. Yeah. Harvey Weinstein, you fuck with me, you're never going to get in a movie anywhere. Doesn't matter. And he really holds that over her head. Like, she shows up to ask for the part, and he forces a kiss on her. She bites him, and, you know, he gets angry, and then basically manipulates her into thinking, one, he, like, pits her against one of the other women by making her think that the other woman got the part. And then... When she finds out she does get the part, he kind of starts grooming her, convinces her to come back to his apartment for a drink, and then starts asking her incredibly inappropriate sexual questions. And when she's clearly uncomfortable, he says things like, well, we need to be able to talk about this, or I don't think you can do it. He says things like that to her all the time. He constantly tears her down, like, stop being so fucking weak. You're not ready for this. Openly mocking her in front of other men, like, would you have sex with this woman? Nobody would, right? Like, this is her job. Yeah, that's her boss. That's her boss. It's horrifying. <laughs> and I think they do such a good job of showing it from her perspective and showing what these people can be like, where they don't come off as all bad. They can come off as very charming and meaning well. And there's just this incredibly sinister nature underneath that can be so hard to detect and even harder to do something about. Yeah, and you see it with the other women, too, because there's, you know, every, everyone's accusing her of having slept with him to get the part. Like, what, did even Beth was like, did you have to blow him? Yeah. You know, to, like, or she's like, what, did you suck his dick to get his part? Like, how did you get this? He always said you were such a, you know, so fragile. Yeah. Or something such like that. Such a frigid little girl. Yeah, such a frigid little girl. And one of the notes I made while watching this was just, like, constant bitch face. From, like, every other ballerina. Like, they're constantly giving each other the dirtiest looks that you've ever seen in your life. And he is, like, helping cultivate and grow that environment. Like, he wants it to be that way. Oh, yeah. And there's definitely... There's there's almost that, like, competition to get in line to be abused. Yeah. He holds the power over all of them, over their careers. Like, he gets to decide... What happens to them right. in their career? Just like with Beth aging out, like there was nothing that she did wrong, but hey, you're done. And Nina was the only one who really showed sympathy for Beth and seemed shocked that she was being phased out. And she said, it's sad. Like Beth is such a beautiful dancer and you can tell that Nina really looks up to Beth. Yeah. And just doesn't doesn't think that this is the right call. But she also really wants that part. So she's not going to complain too much. Right. What did you think about the character of Lily? Jim? Huh? <laughs> I don't get it. Jim Carrey? Yes. <laughs> I have to say, you made me watch this. You should have done that. 
but you forwarded me a clip from SNL of the stupidest, which most of their shit's stupid. Yeah. But the stupidest clip with Jim Carrey, and it's a, it's a Black Swan skit. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> and Jim Carrey plays Lily. And the entire time I'm watching, even though I didn't laugh once while I was watching it, it was just it's just a in your head. You can't unsee it. So every time Lily showed up, I just thought of Jim Carrey <laughs> with his chicken wing yeah, tattoos. His... <laughs> ridiculous. I'm sorry. No, I I I liked the uh, idea of Lily because if again, if you go through and you think about this through many different levels, and if you think about it through the idea of like puberty and just growing into maturity and you initially see Nina seeing herself in other people, even before she meets Lily. Yeah. One of the first things you see is her on a bus, and she sees herself on the bus as another person. That, to me... And she's always afraid or threatened by... By it. But also, like, morbid curiosity at the same time. She's, like, threatened, but interested. Yeah. And wants to know more, and wants to be part of it. And, like, she ends up, like, trying to chase down these versions of herself that she sees out in the real world as well. And what I got on the bus scene was that idea of, like, you know, she has such a structured life, obviously, yeah. and sheltered life. And the version that she saw on the bus just kind of looked like an incredibly, not overtly, but it was just that sense of independence and confidence and that sense of carelessness. The black swan aspect, you know, and I, I kind of got the impression that she was fantasizing about being somebody else yeah, on the bus, somebody outside of her life. And I think Nina, I'm sorry, Lily plays that version that we've all had growing up in puberty, where there was somebody that was around our age that by all other, or at least anybody that isn't the person that we're talking about... <laughs> The, like the non-lilies out there. Yeah. You know, but there's always been a person that was around our age group that just seemed like they weren't going through what we were going through. Yeah, and like somehow it's just easy it's for just them. easy and effortless. And they like were just totally cool with being mature and with sexuality and with dealing with these things. And they had the confidence not to be subjected to the expectations and pressures that we felt or any individual feeling or that sense of discomfort that comes with not knowing who you are through in this metamorphosis. And so Lily portrays this great thing because not only are you, it's that like you want to be it, but you're also afraid of it and it's intimidating. And so Lily portrays, you know, that personification of that to me. Yeah. Like she's everything that Nina wants to be, but is also intimidated by and, and afraid, afraid of. of. And we never really truly know who Lily is. We get little snippets here and there, but we can never be sure of how much of that is real because we're seeing this through Nina's perspective. Right. 100%. So Nina gets it into her head that Lily is after her and wants to take her part and has sinister intentions. But then when we see Lily, she's always friendly and upbeat and approachable. And then she ends up drugging her drink later. So... I don't know how much of that is real. I think the drugging her drink was real. You think? I think so. Because when they talk the next day, she's like, you put something in my drink. And she's like, yeah. And then when she recounts the rest of the night, what she remembers happening, she was like, no, I left with this guy. So, I mean, we really don't know. Yeah. In the end. I guess I have the drugging. 
it seems like they did go out together. And... They definitely went out together. Yeah. But I think from the moment some they, they had that drink, whatever took place. Yeah. A lot of it was... Non. That was not we, reliable. It's not reliable. I have to say, because we were talking about this when we were watching it, it gives me such bad anxiety like seeing in movies when people go on just insane benders before they have a big event, like the night before a big event. Oh, I know. That's the I worst part. Like, I don't so care much. that you're doing drugs and making out yeah. with weirdos and fuck a bathroom. Like, just don't do it the night before that you're supposed to go on stage. Yeah. Like, it makes me like, so do it anxious. The night afterwards or something. But I'm yeah. like, Jesus oh Christ, bro, fucking go to bed. <laughs> I know. I have a note in here in all caps that just says, go to bed. Yeah. That was like the worst part about it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, no. <laughs> that whole scene was so jarring and so well done. Like, there's that... To me, it was really scary. Like, the thought of somebody drugging me is absolutely terrifying. Putting you in that altered state against your will when you're out of your comfort zone, you're with people you don't know. And I think that was captured so well during that whole sequence where, you know, she's high, they're talking to these guys, all of a sudden they're dancing in the club and the people's faces around them are all, like, people from the dance company. It's all distorted. And then she, quote-unquote, wakes up and she's in this filthy alleyway being like shoved up against the wall by a complete stranger who's kissing her. And that's where she comes to and wakes up and realizes the situation she's in. Yeah. That was so scary. Yeah. It was well done as far as that goes. Cause it's just that sense of being lost in the moment and the lights and the action of it. And it almost like was a really well portrayed blackout. Yeah. And what leads up to it. Very. And then just like coming to, and you're like, well, what the fuck just happened and what else happened that I didn't know about. Yeah. And that's the night where she finally, I think, reaches the turning point, not only of her psychosis, but of (laughs) getting that one step closer to being able to embody the black swan. Because this entire time, like her instructor has been trying to encourage her to explore her sexuality. He tells her to go home and touch herself. And just backtracking real quick, that scene where she's in her bedroom and she like tries it out and then she starts getting into it and then, and then all of a sudden her, her mom is sitting the there. That was awful. I know. I had oh a note God. here and it just says boner killing. <laughs> oh, it's so she's terrible. Like totally getting into it. She's like, whoa, wait. Oh, whoa, all right. This is fucking great. Yeah. And then, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so jarring and just. It's like a realistic type of terror. Like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, my mom's there. I'm playing myself. Sitting right there. Yeah. It's terrible. Passed but out, luckily. Yeah. yeah, and like she keeps trying to do this and she can't. I know, and her mom's just like up in her shit. It's and you're like, so... would you just let me jack off? Just like, let, let me, let me nut. fucking nut. It's so overwhelming. And then finally that night, we get the impression that this didn't actually happen, but she brings Lily home with her and she finally is able to bust that nut. Yeah, she, like, gets in a big fight with her mom, and she, like, yells at her, and then she puts a, a metal bar, because there's no locks or anything on her doors, Yeah, course. she's not allowed to have that. Yeah. And, but she puts this metal rod at an angle so that it blocks the door, and her mom can't get in there, and then her and uh, Lily banging out, and it's just the best night she's ever had in her whole life. Yeah. For multiple reasons, including being able to finally stand up to her mom. Huge turning point for her. Right. Which ended up just being... Like her fantasy again. Yeah. That was just that from that point forward, the movie had zero chill. It was completely insane. No, that was definitely an inflection point. I also thought that this movie, I mean, it is considered a psychological horror movie, but this had some extremely effective scenes of body horror. 
Yeah, especially for like the type of stuff that gets you. That hangnail scene is to this day, like when I think of body horror, well, one, I think of the fly because David Cronenberg is like the king of body horror. I think Darren Aronofsky saw the fly and was like, oh shit, I got to use some of this. But that hangnail scene every single time, like I cannot stand it. Because we've all done that. We've all had a hangnail that we pull and it goes too far. And this one goes like all the way down to the second knuckle of her (laughs) finger and you feel it. Like it hurts to watch it. I think the one that got me more is when she's, she just bombed the the Black Swan edition Uh and she's devastated by it. And she comes home and she's decided, and this is after like what appears to be a 16 hour day. Of ballet and all this other stuff and auditions. Yeah. And she comes home and starts trying to practice more. Ugh. And she's balancing on her toes at some point, And you just hear this like, and the oh, nail splits. Like all their, her toenail, <sighs> big toenail just splits all the way down. Oh, it's so bad. That got to me more <laughs> than the hangnail thing. The toe was bad, but the hangnail is just the worst for me because I've done that so many times, not nearly to that extreme, but your fingertips are so sensitive. And just think of how much it hurts to get a paper cut and then to just pull the skin all the way off to the second knuckle. Speaking of all the body horror and the pain, I did want to bring up and note his bringing to our attention kind of subtly, really, the brutality of the industry. Yeah. And what they have to put up with. Yeah. So first off, you obviously see her, her feet initially, and this is where she has that split on the nail. And, you know, her feet are all bandaged up already. And then she has this thing take place where it just splits and she just has to keep on going. You have whatever else she has going on with her. And there's also the scene, there's some scenes where she goes into the... Oh, the chiropractor? The chiropractor and, like, some of the shit that they're having to do to her just to get her to continue on. Yeah. This is after she's gotten the role and everything. But I was uh, reading an article that was, I think it was called, like, Hell of Ballerinas or something like that. And it mm-hmm. was some of the, the horror stories of just the industry. Yeah, like injuries that people Well, have. yeah, and there's, there's this one where this uh, was a gentleman that was talking about it. And he says, my worst... Injury occurred when I attempted a barrel turn and moved my foot wrong. I heard four pops pulling my fibula and tibia apart. Oh, my God. I also tore a few tendons in my foot. In the dance world, you were expected to go on. So I danced the rest of my set like that. Oh, my God. Before going off stage and collapsing in pain. I didn't walk again for two months and was out for four months under care of the Baltimore Ravens private doctor. Holy shit. But... That's this industry. It's brutal. It really is. I and think you see that with... He really doesn't go that deep into it, I yeah. don't think. I, I feel like that's something that he could have. But again, it's supposed to be more of a psychological thriller, so I understand why he didn't. But those moments are so he, effective. He tried to put that in there, at least to some degree of... And it, having it be just a completely isolating... Not isolating, but it's a, um, it's a lonely pain. Yeah. Even though they're all going through it, you are expected to just... Buckle up. Just fucking... I don't want to hear about it. Nobody wants to hear about it. You're yeah. all in fucking pain. Just deal with it. Keep dancing. Exactly. And you have that even when she's on stage and she, like, fumbles and falls. Yeah. At the, at the actual... The, the actual production, right? Yeah, the production. I'm trying yeah. to think of the... What's the first one called? 
Opening curtain? Yeah, opening night. <laughs> yeah, Thank opening you. night. <laughs> On opening night, and she, like, collapses and falls. Like, it's a hard-ass fall, but you just have to keep going. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to bring that up. No, definitely. I think the <laughs> the body horror really is meant to emphasize that in a way that everybody can relate to, even if they have never done any extreme physical activity like that. Right. Everyone can relate to pulling a hangnail too far. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, it makes you... It really puts you there. <laughs> Even what you see Nina going through to maintain that tiny ballerina body. Like we see her repeatedly going into the bathroom to throw up. She weighs maybe 95 pounds soaking wet. Right. And she's expected to maintain that body type to stay in that industry. Yeah, she has a half of a grapefruit and a hard boiled egg for breakfast. Yeah. Before she goes on these like 16 hour laborious days. And when her mom buys her a cake to celebrate... Nina is almost upset. She's like, I can't eat that. I just got this roll. I can't, like, I cannot do that. And her mom has one of her weird manipulative things where she, like, freaks out and goes, like, fine, fuck it, and throws the whole cake away. Yeah. And then there's that whole, it's just kind of a weird scene. It's that manipulative thing where she's, that's kind of where I got the Munchausen by proxy because maybe she's not getting attention from the outside world, but I think she's getting attention from her daughter. Yeah. And, like, making her daughter feel for her. Anyways. It's so much that she can't even try to enjoy a piece of cake on what it should be and is the greatest night of her life. Yeah, she's afraid of the consequences. Right. I really love, I mean, the entire movie is very surreal. And I love that you know what you're in for right away because it opens with a dream sequence. which And you know how much I love dream sequences. But you kind of get that impression right away that this is going to be a very surreal dreamlike experience. And they really turn that up to 11, I think after the night out. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before the theme of duality and what they do with the reflections, which I absolutely loved the mirror shots and the reflection shots. And you get so many scenes where Nina is looking at herself in the mirror and then her reflection will do something slightly different from her. And then as the movie goes on, it becomes increasingly more sinister. Like the things that her reflection is doing. Yeah. Her reflection becomes much more aggressive. Yeah. And just that entire, I'd say the entire last 20 minutes of the movie is just a fever dream. Yeah a great way to put it yeah it's it's fantastic so so what did you think of that whole end portion where she actually gets to dance as the black swan and the quote-unquote confrontation with lily or she thinks it's lily like that whole thing i loved it i honestly it made me appreciate the dancing a lot more yeah because that's the first time you really see them actually do it right when they're not practicing yeah, when they're not, it's the first time you see them do that, but you have seen them do a lot of the practicing, like all these things, but there's a particular sequence where she's doing this constant rotational thing mm -hmm. where she's, you know, it's obviously the swan lake, they're all supposed to be swans and shit. So you see them like doing these arm flapping things and it's, it's beautiful, you know, but at the same time, I've never seen ballet. I'm not ballet aficionado by any means. And so to me, I'm not really into it on some some degree like i'm not drawn to it mm -hmm. i would love to go to a ballet i'd love to see it it's impressive you know but as i was watching them i'm like okay so they're doing some of this shit cool but when she does that fever dream thing and you actually start to see her like unflutter the wings 
And as she's going, every time she like spans her arms out, it's the, the wings and they get bigger and bigger and more full. And you hear the flapping and the fluttering and the, and the way that she's moving her body as a bird. And it's really that time when I saw that, I was like, fuck, that's cool. Yeah. And the shadows. And the shadow. Yeah. That was when I was like, now I want to actually watch this and imagine them as birds or swans and whatever's going on here. But I thought that was very well done as far as even in that small amount of time trying to give you an appreciation of the art itself. Yeah. I definitely feel like the last 20 minutes is really the fun part of the movie. And it's almost, there's almost a level of just the slightest amount of camp, like the the confrontation Mm -hmm. between her and Lily, where it's almost funny. And then after she stabs Lily and realizes that she's actually stabbed herself, maybe, we don't know for sure. And she panics and doesn't know what to do. And then she sits down and starts putting on her makeup again. Right. Because she has to go back out there. Like, it's almost funny and it's fun to watch. Mm -hmm. And then when she finally gets to be the black swan, one, the costume is just amazing. It's so satisfying. But then you remember that there is nothing empowering about this and that this doesn't end well for her. So it's kind of like, it's fun to watch and it's entertaining, but then you realize you're entertained at her expense. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, and that's exactly what the industry is. Yeah, like it does that so well. And then by the end, you're like, oh shit, I feel kind of shitty. Even if she has now finally reached that perfection, which she has, both to her mind and Tomas and the audience's. You know, she has literally become the black swan Mm -hmm. and being able to, and she does it with such a fever yeah, and such effortless grace. And you really, and you you see it in her eyes and the way that she's actually becoming the swan. It's really her dream. Everything that she's been fighting for. And like you said, you're like, wow, that's fucking awesome. But at the same time, it's this woman and everything that she's had to get through to do this to the point where she literally at least in her mind she just murdered somebody and killed herself to do it it's really dark but i think it's presented in a way that is very entertaining it's incredible and i I think that that makes it even more sinister in a way yeah i think it was really highlighting the industry yeah and highlighting the fact that yes we know these women go through hell. Yes, we know it's brutal. Yes, it's fucking entertaining. Yes, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this movie just, it fucking rules. I, I also it. couldn't help imagine, because, you know, she just blew everybody away. Yeah. There was a, a snafu, again, I said, on the when she was with a white swan, yeah. actually. And she fell in one of the dancer's arms, the, the prince, I think it was, his role. And, you know, so everyone's kind of, and flurry about that. Like, if we just fuck up this whole show, obviously, Tomas is just livid. But then she comes around to the Black Swan and just blows everybody away. And the last thing of the... And you've seen her do this in practice, too. There's the last scene is her running up this ramp because the story of the Black Swan is that she ends up... Or, or the Swan Lake is that this woman or the swan ends up killing herself yeah because the black swan took everything that she wanted right and so there's this suicide scene at the end where she runs up a ramp and she kind of looks down at the prince that she was in love with she looks down at all the other swans and then she finally looks at the audience and jumps off the cliff backwards and 
when she does it for this time on the real production after just blowing everybody away, you know, you just see like everybody, all the performers, Tomas, the audience, and in particular, her mom looking like dead at her, just going like, holy shit. And she is looking somehow simultaneously at every single one of them in the eye and just like giving them the biggest middle finger. <laughs> I just imagine her just going like middle finger all the way up if she falls backwards and yes. falls to her death, you know, just like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. And then it ends with everybody, you know, you hear a standing ovation, everyone's yeah. cheering. And then her mom comes and Toma comes and he was like, you did it. You're amazing. They listen to them. They love you. And then she says, I finally felt it. It was perfect. Yeah. And then we fade out, assuming that she dies. And you, at this this time you see the blood yeah, spreading. of where she was stabbed. So I, I was reading about Natalie Portman's role on this. Mm-hmm. And one thing, because I every time we watched it, I asked you, like, did she actually dance? Did she actually dance? Yeah, and I think she did for a lot of it. Well, she actually spent an entire year studying and training at a dance academy. Wow, for, for this, this role. She's such a good method actor. not only that, so yes, she did, if not all, a large majority of her scenes. Yeah. I didn't get, like, a proportional thing on that, but my understanding was she pretty much did everything. Pretty much all the dancers that you see on the set are all professional dancers. In fact, the prince was one of her dancing instructors on set. And uh, I didn't know this until recently, but they actually obviously met on set and they have been married and have two kids together. And really? And married. Oh my gosh. Which I thought was, you know, pretty neat. I love that. And what I was getting at, so there's some interesting stuff with that, but there was a, a part where uh, Natalie Portman was actually had confronted Darren Aronofsky about that particular end scene with the blood. Because I didn't really notice it, but there's actually, I don't think you see it until she falls and everybody's like around her. There's actually blood like on her thighs oh. as well. And she was like, I don't feel comfortable with that. It's like menstruation and yeah. it's kind of weird. And he's like, well, it's supposed to be. Not that it was supposed to be weird. He's like, it's supposed to be her menstruating and her becoming a woman. Oh. And finally breaking through. And But at the same time, it's just that sick thing where everyone's like celebrating and yeah, up in like your Like under intense oppression. Yeah. And it's just kind of a, a weird scene. But that's where she... At least Natalie was saying that her interpretation of the ending based on that was not that Nina had died or had even been stabbed by herself, but that she had just menstruated and finally had become the black swan, had become the other duality. Interesting. And that was her her way of like the metamorphosis of finally breaking away from the child. That's so interesting. I guess it's like another testament to how stunted she was because Nina is an adult. Exactly. She's at least in her 20s. Yeah, and she's, she's old enough to drink. Yeah, she's in her early 20s. Yeah. But she. That's interesting. Yeah. And you know, actually, I mean, this movie's really surreal, so you don't want to try to attach too much logic no. to it. But I know that if you are that rough on your body or you're underweight or you're not getting the right type of nutrients, like that can actually stop your period. Oh, yeah. And I've known girls that that's happened to, like in high school, where they lost too much weight or they had a poor diet or were going through other kind of health problems and it just stops. Yeah. And I, so I don't think there's anything too strikingly strange about that after what we've seen yeah. of her diet, of her lifestyle, of her psychosis. Yeah. 
And I love that this is so open to interpretation and you can go so many directions with this. And I, I think that's a really interesting theory. But I think personally for me, based on everything we've talked about and what I get out of this movie, I think it's a lot more impactful if she does die or if she is at least injured. Because that's the, you know, the consequence of everything that she's had to go through and everything that she's been put through and put herself through. I think that going off of those themes, it's a little bit more impactful that way. What do you think? I think it's impactful anyway. I mean, even if she didn't die, we've already seen all of the pain and struggle that she has gone through. And with the projection of Beth, we see what her future is and that it's not long. Yeah. So to me, it's almost... I, I, I like the... The ambiguity. The ambiguity. I also like the idea of it being like her metamorphosis into adulthood and going through all this with her psychosis and and not her being actually dead. Yeah. It seems a a bit melodramatic to me. Yeah. This movie is a little bit melodramatic. It is, but I I, I think that would be a bit more melodramatic. Yeah. And I think this is not so much about like... I was reading another nice article that was long form and um it was like film coliseum or something like that but the the guy was going through and basically giving two different analyses because they again were so similar in nature in a lot of ways was the wrestler and black swan and obviously darren aronofsky felt the same too you know because he was going to combine them the two worlds but you know one world with the wrestler is you have someone who spends their entire career getting beat to shit and then literally has to and you see it with all the other guys that at the signings where their legs are broken and they have all kinds of shit going on and they can't move and they're all just like signing autographs and shit for five dollars a pop trying to make ends meet yeah but a wrestler's career ends in relatively quote-unquote old age where they're spent at the end, yeah. whereas a ballerina's career is spent at the beginning. It's like in childhood up to the point of, again, maturity being like 25 and you're done. Whereas a, a wrestler, it's kind of, you start more in the like 18 to 25 range and then you're fed up by the time you're like 40. So with that aspect of it, I liked the idea of Natalie or Nina still having to go through and sacrificing herself for our entertainment. I like that. That's a really good point. Wow. Yeah. So there, there's so much here and hopefully I've made clear why this is my favorite Darren Aronofsky movie. (laughs) I think it's absolutely fantastic. The best description I can think of for this is this movie rules. I have to throw out there and give you props because you did a great job embodying the black swan for your halloween costume thank you that was one of my favorite halloween costumes it was so fun you nailed it and your friend sylvia did your makeup yeah and she nailed it that yeah. was a great costume you guys did an awesome job if i find it maybe i'll put it up on the instagram for you guys to check it out it was a few years ago you should really fun it was great <laughs> i did it a couple times a couple years in a row couldn't quite let her go no you could do it again i would do it again yeah i absolutely love this movie So when it comes to ratings, we rate on a scale of zero to 12 beers. And like I said, I think that out of all of Darren Aronofsky's movies, this one is the closest to being perfect. And then you add on top of that, that it is a 
very effective horror movie, and it is also a very effective psychological thriller that gives you plenty to think about, plenty to chew on, and has so many themes and different ways that you can interpret it. I loved the cinematography, the acting, the score, the directing style, pretty much everything about it. The only thing that didn't really stand out to me is I don't think it really had the strongest script, but I don't, that doesn't really take away from the experience too much for me. So I think on a scale of zero to 12 beers, this is an almost perfect movie. I'm going to give it 11 out of 12 beers. Nice. I thought you were going to go a little higher than that, especially since you're just your number one on his list. It is. That's not to say that I wouldn't give one of his other movies a perfect score, but not as a horror movie. Okay. And I'm rating this as a horror movie. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. So as a movie, just on its own, it's just about perfect. I'd probably give it a 12, but as a horror movie, I'm going to do an 11 out of 12. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to lie. Every time we come to this part in the podcast, I forget that we rate them and <laughs> give me anxiety because I don't want to rate it because it's fucking good. It's just good. Go watch it. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, how to fine tooth this. Yeah. I don't take the I'm ratings too to, seriously if you're listening. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. uh, and I've always just rated it as a movie. Now we're rating it as a horror movie. Well, this like, is a horror podcast. Well, I know. But it's still a movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if we're rating it as a horror movie, that does knock it down a little bit. You know, um, I, I will say yes to everything that you said. I agree with all of those things. Okay. <laughs> all the compliments and highlights of it, as well as the critique on the script. I yeah. do feel that was an apt point. It was probably its most severely lacking aspect of it, but it wasn't, uh, didn't take away. I guess in that sense, I'm, I'm about the same page. I was actually going to give it 11 right off the bat, just as it is. So yeah, 11, it's an 11. It's a good nice. fucking movie. Go it's, watch it. Yeah. Hopefully you're not listening to this podcast to decide whether or not you should watch these movies <laughs> or maybe it was, you know maybe you're deciding to watch it again yeah watch it again that's what we're hoping for we're either hoping that if you've seen it you get a new perspective on it or maybe you're one of our listeners who hates horror movies and you just want to hear more about it but hopefully you know before the episode you've at least checked it out once oh but if, if not go watch it yeah if you haven't watched it watch it it's great well Great fucking movie. Is there a Thank great you. beer we compare this with? Yes, I found, in my opinion, the perfect beer to go with this movie. And I've actually heard other podcasts talk about this beer. And I want to try it so badly, but I cannot find it in California. And I can't find a place that ships it to California. What? So if anybody listening finds this beer, please hook me up. So I think this would pair perfectly with the Lagunitas Dark Swan ale. It is a sour ale fermented with red wine grapes. And the description of this beer, I, I immediately thought of this beer to pair it with, but when I read the description of it, it was just so perfect. And it says, observers of yester century once denied the existence of the dark swan as obstinately as flat earthers once denied the shape of our spherical home. You still do. They insisted the species was confined to a singular snowy hue but there is a fragile futility to such narrowness of thought. The broader of mind understood that light and dark must forever complement each other as eternal counterpoints. And just as Aristotle convinced us of our circularity, so adventuring ornithologists eventually contradicted the misconception of the monochrome swan, astonishing the world and casting light upon the dark. This beer may well do the same. 
That's a lot for a beer. That's a lot. It's it sounds very complex for a sour ale. So <laughs> they're certainly making it out that way. I want so to try if you're it. able, to, I really want to try it. So if you're able to get your hands on this beer, definitely try to pair it with this movie. Let me know how it goes, or send me one if you feel so inclined. Yeah, I want to try it. Yeah. Okay, so this was my pick. What are we watching next time? Well, first off, good pick. I had a good time. Thank you. Both watching and bullshit. My pick this week is going to be a movie that I have never seen, you've never seen, so going in blind. Wow. You're the one who introduced me to the idea of this because you thought it would be up my alley, and after reading the synopsis, the synopsis, I feel like it's definitely my bag. <laughs> it's called Man Bites Dog. Nice. It's on HBO Max right now. It's a Frenchie. <laughs> and I am looking forward to it because it sounds dark and funny. It's like It sounds like a dark satire. It does. And um, I'm not going to tell you about it. Just go watch it. Awesome. I'm going to go watch it. Go on blind. That's the way to do it. Awesome. I'm excited to check that out. Good pick. All right. So you guys can, of course, follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. If you have questions for us, movie or beer suggestions, just want to say hello or give us your thoughts on Black Swan or Darren Aronofsky in general or anything we've talked yeah, about. What's your favorite Darren, Ar- Darren yeah. Aronofsky movie? Or do you hate him? And if so, why? We want to hear from you. You can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. And if you guys get a chance, please just take a second to go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. I saw that we had a somewhat recent new reviewer, so thank you so much for the kind words and for helping other people find us. Yeah, thank really you. appreciate it. I get so excited every time I see a new review. So please do that if you get a chance. And I'm looking forward to watching Man Bites Dog. So until next time, keep it spooky. Cheers. Cheers.